is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Chris Seaton. And I'm Charles Feldman. If you haven't voted yet, many of you have a good idea of which candidates you're going to choose. But there are some of you out there planning to vote, and you truly don't know yet. But why? What more do you need to know? We go in-depth to try to solve the mystery of the undecided voter. Voters in 2024 could see a familiar name on the presidential ballot. Yeah, that guy, Donald Trump. The former (laughs) president could be ready for another run, though he faces some problems. And Twitter, devastating, laying off hundreds of workers in a move that could transform the company forever. Yeah, and speaking of Twitter, Charles, a new study details a rise in hate speech on the Twitter platform. We're going to go into depth uh, into another statewide ballot measure. This time we're going to look uh, inside Prop 30. And we've seen an awful lot of advertising on both sides of that one uh, as of late. The CDC is changing some recommendations for doctors who prescribe opioids. Will they cause more problems than they try to solve? And we fall back. Don't forget, we fall back this weekend. But many sleep experts say there should be no spring forward anymore. But we start with undecided voters. With us is Jay Van Bavel, professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University. He is the co-author of The Power of Us, Harnessing Our Shared Identities to Improve Performance, Increase Cooperation, and promote social harmony. I like the social harmony part. Thanks for being with us, Jay. (laughs) Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, we keep talking about uh, the undecideds, uh, people who they still haven't decided with Election Day now fast approaching uh, for whom to vote or if they're going to vote. Can you walk us through what goes through somebody's mind after Weeks and months of campaigning and television ads and newspaper ads, depending on where you are in in the country, and they still don't know, how do they finally go about deciding? Yeah, I mean, to people who vote, the undecided voter seems a little bit like a unicorn. It's it's hard to imagine actually seeing one in the wild. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But it it turns out there are a good number of undecided voters. And so what's happening with them is the first thing just to understand is – they're less engaged in politics. So these are not people who are reading the news every day. They're busy with their lives. They're not like super into it in the same way that, that for example, I am. They're not political junkies. They're not, you mentioned Twitter before. They're not the ones on Twitter posting about their political beliefs all the time. They're probably not there at all. And so for them, they're kind of like just coming to a lot of the issues the days before when they're trying to decide even if they're going to go to the, to the ballot and vote as it is. And in those final few days, the thing that seems to drive them is party identification. Um, so if they're a registered Republican, even if they're not really paying much attention, they'll probably just like vote for Republican. And if they're a registered Democrat, there's a good chance they'll just show up and vote Democrat, even if they haven't really paid much attention to the debates and the election. Well, Jay, let me throw this at you then. How much do you think does last-minute advertising help? In other words, you know, if you can be the candidate or the proposition who's maybe the last thing that this voter sees before they decide one way or the other, could it come down to a single ad swaying them? Yeah, so here's here's the secret about all the research on those ads. They don't really work that much. <laughs> um, it, it seems like they're actually a waste of a lot of money. And one of the reasons is because people are bombarded with so many ads from both sides. And so it's not like they saw one ad the weekend before. They're going to see 46. 
and they're just kind of like going to balance each other out. The, the one thing that ads seem to do for uh, undecided voters is turn them away from politics altogether. And so one of the reasons the ads are often so negative is to kind of try to disengage further, say, a Republican who's not really into politics, but just convince them maybe don't even bother showing up or convince a Democrat don't even waste your time going to the polls. And so that's actually, if there is a purpose, it's mainly just to convince them not to show up at all. Okay, so if a lot, many, most of the undecided voters, as you suggest, are, uh, and I use the word in a, I guess I actually use it in a pejorative sense, is sort of ignorant of what is happening around them, at least in the political sphere, how is it that they then make their decision? Do they, in the last day, sort of, you know, go online and kind of gulp down as much info as they can? Do they talk to friends? Do they vote because their neighbor is voting for somebody? What do they do? Yeah, so I think you you touched on a couple key things. One of the big predictors is what the norms are. So what do what are people like me doing? So if your neighbor is going to vote, you're much more likely to do it if you think especially all your neighbors are doing it. Um, and then, you know, you look at those signs on their lawns and the stickers on their cars. And people are actually, especially undecided voters, seem to be a little bit more swayed by what those are called social norms. And so part of it is like looking around to see what everybody else seems to be doing. Interesting. And Jay, maybe before we let you go, Jay, for those who might argue that these people who who don't know this close to Election Day, who maybe might be that uninformed but just kind of go in at the last minute, maybe they shouldn't be um you know, showing up at the polls or, or, or their votes, their votes could hurt. I know everybody, everybody should get out and vote. That said. Yeah. I mean, one of, one of the other problems, of course, is in midterm elections in general, fewer people vote. Um, and so, you know, when it rolls around in two years for the presidential election, those same people actually might care a lot more. They might identify with the people running for president, but they're just often not nearly as engaged during the midterms. Okay. Jay, thank you for your perspective. Jay Van Babel. He is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University. Right now, though, multiple news sources say former President Trump could announce another run at the presidency as early as the 14th of November. They're citing people familiar with the matter. Can we expect the same old, same old from him or will there be a different approach and will Republican voters take to it? Rena Shaw is a Republican strategist based in Washington, D.C., and a former congressional senior staffer. Thanks for being with us. So I know there's been this kind of on-again, on off-again guessing game for, what, the past couple of years about whether Mr. Trump was going to throw his hat into the ring. From your vantage point, does does it look like all of these sort of leaked rumors, uh, are they going to be accurate, you think? Well, despite the former president having lost the last election, his name has never left the minds of pretty much every Republican across the country. Certainly, the Republican Party has a number of factions. There's the Never Trump faction, which is kind of small, uh, something like 10 percent-ish. They'd like to think they're bigger. Then there's also the Maybe Trump. And then there's the Always Trump. So people have really found a way to define themselves, if you're a Republican in this era, by saying using the Trump family last name in that way. I think the string of keeping us guessing is definitely in line with who the former president is. He likes to keep people on their toes, and he certainly likes to be remembered by most, if not all. If he does decide to run, uh, will that mean that Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, Greg Abbott uh, from Texas, whose names have been bantied about an awful lot, especially DeSantis, will decide to stand this one out? <laughs> 
start with this. The Republican Party in its current form is still very much President Donald J. Trump's party. And that hasn't changed. Now, if he does announce for president, I tend to think that it's a question of whether we're going to watch a temper tantrum or a meltdown. And when I say that, I say, you know, this is this is Donald Trump's party and he'll have cake if he wants to and he'll cry if he wants to. So it depends on what people will react with, what the RNC specifically, as well as other potential contenders in a GOP primary, how they will react. Will they be like the parents and the kids in the room at a birthday party when the birthday boy is having that meltdown? Will they yield the floor and say, fine, it's your birthday? That's what the question truly is. So when it comes to these Republican governors, such as Florida's Governor DeSantis or Texas's Abbott, I think it's uh, really, for me, who sticks out the most. To me, it's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, because in talking with numerous Republican voters around the country, one thing that I have heard is that DeSantis does enjoy a lot of favor from the maybe Trump camp that I alluded to earlier. Those are people that are pretty much done with the drama that President Trump uh, sort of brought with him whether it was while he was in office or after he left, they sort of say, you know what, we gave him a chance, he lost, and uh, I was fine to vote for him back then, but I'm ready for something new. So that's what I'm hearing from people who, who want Governor DeSantis to run for president. And, and because of that, that appetite for him, there is a pretty strong ground game out there. If you're looking at any faction of the Republican Party, and I'm talking geographically this time, the Mid-Atlantic, the Southern, or the Western states, you're hearing people saying that Governor DeSantis is the one who could really give Trump a bit of a run for his money because of the people he has on the ground in other parts of the country. Let's talk again about uh, Trump in particular. He's particularly astute at branding when it comes to himself. Uh, Would one expect him to state a brand if, in fact, he, as people seem to think he will, announce his running again for president? Might we expect the same Donald Trump, or is he going to pivot in some way that we can only imagine? Well, I think one thing we've seen since President Trump left office is a continuation of the Trump family brand. When you go to a Trump rally, you're not seeing RNC flags. You're not seeing that many elephants. You're seeing the last name Trump. And that's done strategically. This was, uh, you know, this is a successful entrepreneur by many measures. You know, people out there say this is a person that who couldn't have built uh, numerous businesses over the years if he wasn't so good at branding. So that continuation of the brand, I don't think we'll ever see that change. Um, you'll, you'll get a lot of just who he is, unabashedly, uh, unapologetic, ra- rather, for who he is as a person and what he wants to bring to America. He wants to bring this sense of greatness, the fact that that, um, you know, we we are number one in the world on a, on a great many things, but things could be better here. And it depends on how he sort of seizes the attention of the electorate. There are a great many challenges since he left office. We're obviously in that post-pandemic era. A lot of experts would agree with that statement. Um, but look, when you look at DeSantis, for example, why I think more than any other governor, and I'm even talking about people like Carrie Lake in Arizona who could win that governorship there. I'm talking about Virginia's Governor Glenn Youngkin, who will be turned limited out and who's gone out to Arizona actually to support Carrie Lake. I'm saying this about Trump. I think he could clear the field uh, of many contenders, but DeSantis could really give him a run for his money because DeSantis has the elements of the MAGA philosophy that make America great again philosophy without as much of the burn it all vibe that Donald Trump brings with him. DeSantis is 
able to navigate it more artfully than Trump, uh, in my opinion. And uh, look, uh, also, if Governor, if Carrie Lake becomes governor in Arizona, um, you know, people say, well, she should run for president as a Republican, obviously. But why would she run for uh, because she would have just been elected as governor? And why would she be, yeah. make that well, well, you know, jump? Well, Rena, let me ask you this, then. You, you've got Ron DeSantis, Carrie Lake on one side of the spectrum. Then you've got somebody like a Liz Cheney, who he calls a rhino, on the other end of the spectrum. She's a solid conservative Republican. Could she or anyone else like her uh, um, so-called never-Trumper stand a chance against him in the primaries? Or has her brand been absolutely destroyed by the former president? Well, let me put a bow tie on the Lake and DeSantis thing for a moment real quick. And I'll just say, I don't think Carrie Lake would run for president if Trump runs. I do think if Trump decides to announce and run, that Governor DeSantis could potentially still announce and run. Uh, he may be having fun with this. Who knows? I mean, there are whispers on the ground saying that he is an option and still very seriously considering it. Uh, but, you know, when you talk about Congresswoman, soon to be former Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who represents the Never Trump faction, I think you see in her a woman that understands what happened to her brand and her family's good name in the era of Trump. She decided to stand on principle. She decided to join with Democrats. In fact, last week, there were reports of her even supporting uh, a Democrat woman who's running for Congress. So this is um, a person who feels very compelled to continue having an R next to her name, feels very compelled to stand up for what is the Republican way of her father's time and what she hopes will be the Republican way of the future, but still believes that there's a voice and, and a need for her voice in today's Republican Party. I don't see anything wrong with it, but I think she is uh, smarter than she leads on, uh, or people should at least know that, because she certainly has seen the numbers and has seen uh, that the never-Trump faction is quite small and couldn't really give her that boost. It's the maybe-Trump faction that's in power. Okay. That's, again, yeah. the, the faction that says, is it too much um, you know, for Trump to come back, or do I just want to take a chance on someone new? That's okay. who holds the real fate for Donald Trump. Rena, thank you. Rena Shaw, Republican strategist, former congressional senior staffer. Coming up, we look into Prop 30, which promises money to help fight wildfires. But is it just a ploy to help one company make money? And sleep experts explain the benefits to moving our clocks back for good if we decide to do it that way. Right now, though, massive layoffs have now started at Twitter. Elon Musk, the new owner, hinting just before and after his takeover that this could happen. Layoffs hit every department across the company. The exact number of workers laid off or percentage of the workforce is still unclear. Uh, Twitter isn't the only tech company to let workers go as of late. Aaron Rafferty, CEO of Standard Dallas, tech startup company, founder of its uh, subsidiary Battle Packs, joins us now on KNX. Uh, Aaron Thank you. Um, crazy times right now. Uh, is this just life in the tech sector? Absolutely. And Chris, Charles, thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, since I started in this sector, uh, it's it's never it's never a good day when we're seeing you know so many layoffs, especially uh, across so many companies. But you know, tech moves so quickly, and we have so many innovations that are coming on board. You know, our background and our our focus is on more advanced technologies, uh, you know, blockchain, AI, and as we're, we're seeing, uh, you know, m- more bloated companies that uh, don't have the ability to move as quickly in these types of, of niches. And it, it really, as they're trying to keep up, it, it, it's a very fast moving industry. 
So I'm curious, with so many people at Twitter being laid off, you have to wonder, were they needed? I mean, what were they all doing? And why does he think, Elon Musk, that by getting rid of all these people, he can still run the company? Well, that's a good question on on the what were they doing? Uh, you know, that's that's not something that necessarily I, I can speak to. But what I can say is that, you know, Elon didn't come onto Twitter and purchase because he wants to run Twitter business as usual. He wants to, you know, bring on innovations within that company that will make it profitable um, and more profitable than it was. It, you know, he purchased it at a much higher valuation than today it is on market. And what we're seeing, especially, uh, you know, Jack Dorsey already left the company, the the founder of the company. And so what Elon is doing, he's a he's a serial entrepreneur and he wants to bring this in line with his more advanced technologies. And and whether or not he needs 7000 employees to do that, it, it seems that, you know, that's not the case. You know, he's the founder of OpenAI and has a company that's largely focused on bringing AI into the forefront for, for humanity. And as he's doing this, uh, you know, what I see that's happening is he's unlocking a lot of value, not necessarily for um, the employees that he's laying off, but for the users of Twitter and for the people in uh, America and, and the broader world. Uh, Aaron, there are those who are already showing a lot of concern that losing this many people this soon will open it up, will open Twitter up to more problems, less close check on things. Your take on on that? I think it's absolutely a possibility. That being said, you know, they're not the only ones having massive layoffs right now. Uh, You know, FANG stocks are down 65 percent across the board. And we're seeing a lot of these companies that they are struggling to. Uh, keep up with the newer tech companies that are coming on board. Uh, the whole AI uh, marketplace is being rapidly funded right now. Uh, blockchain is a big sector. And these employees at Twitter, they're looking to uh, also bring on some of the skills that they have to potentially more of the startup environment in that, in that world. And, you know, from personal experience, you know, that's who we're looking to. When we see these layoffs, when I, when I see Twitter uh, laying off, when I see um, you know, Stripe and these other companies that are in the tech space, I see this as the opportunity for that employee to now uh, come into a faster moving company and start to have more responsibility over things and mandates that they could bring forward. So do you view a a fired um, Twitter employee as potentially a good employee for you? Absolutely. And I think it's a, a fired Twitter employee, um, whether fired or layoff, uh, you know, these are still skilled individuals, and regardless of what they were doing at Twitter, you know this is their opportunity to you know brush up on their skills and apply them in fields that are more innovative and will actually most likely outpace some of the larger tech companies that we have today. And I think that is the cycle that we're seeing right now. All right. Aaron, thank you. Again, that's Aaron Rafferty, CEO of tech startup company Standard Dow. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Chris Edens. I'm Charles Feldman. Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter hasn't been pretty so far when it comes to what's being said on the platform itself. A, a new study from Montclair State University in New Jersey shows a big increase in hate speech soon after Elon Musk took over. Yeah, he said that he would create a content moderation council that will review company policies, but how much hate will spread until he does that? 
Bon Benton is a professor in the School of Communication and Media at Montclair State. He's one of the study co-authors. Thanks for being with us. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, as I said, Musk is saying he's going to create this council. They're going to review things. They will decide if people like former President Donald Trump will get reinstated to his uh, Twitter account. But by the time he gets around to it, it seems like a lot of potential damage could be done. Yes. Um, one of the, the the things that I think is key is that in terms of official changes to moderation policy, there really hasn't been any at this point. Uh, what we do have, though, is that uh, we have a number of statements prior to him taking over as CEO where he said that he was going to free the bird, where he was going to review some of the suspended accounts. Um, he really was almost inviting a space where there would be reduced moderation. And the fact that a segment of users chose to celebrate that uh, by posting some of the most vile sort of hate language possible immediately after he took over as CEO is kind of like like sort of a putrid ticker tape parade for his arrival. Um, I think going forward, it's going to be uh, very interesting to see um, if moderation standards are upheld, if he maybe sort of like backs away from some of this uh, initial thought that reduced moderation would be good for the platform. Um, I think that it's all very much up in the air. We just saw this as a concern and we just wanted to collect the data from the period immediately after he took over as CEO. Well, Professor Benton, I hope this is a fair question, but what kind of changes should there be when it comes to content moderation on a, on a site like Twitter? Um, I think that, that it is important to note that uh, looking at the data for an extended period of time, there's always going to be hate speech in social media. It's almost like uh, like the ambient noise of an air conditioner. Like there will always be people posting sort of offensive things. Um, and content moderation teams will sort of say that like specific hate terms, like like uh, the ones that we looked at, for example, were hate terms that were directed at people based on race, um, on their LGBTQ plus status. Um, uh, we looked at a specific term that is uh, a slur against Jewish people. Um, I think that there's really no like reasonable like explanation as to why a platform would want that sort of content. Um, and it's sort of always there, like people sort of always will post this sort of content. But we just saw that that, that enormous spike. Uh, and that's a concern. Uh, we hope that actions are being taken. Twitter has said that uh, in public statements, that this was largely a prank from sort of like like the crowd from like 4chan or one of these sites coming there to do this almost like vandalizing the platform. And it, it looks like there's some truth to that because uh, the amount of hate speech did uh, kind of dissipate to a degree. The concern we have is that that ambient level of hate that exists on every platform is a little higher now on Twitter than it was prior to his arrival. And we want to continue to monitor that, see what, what happens going forward. Um, it's possible that this was all like a branding thing where Musk said, you know, like, I don't want to moderate as much because we're like the free spirited platform. And if that's the case, you know, I mean, that's that's kind of a shtick, right? That's fine. Um, but we really want to see, you know, if 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 this platform does open the door for this hateful content, um, this is something we want to make sure that we're continuing just to monitor and see what occurs. So what do you say to somebody who might take the, a kind of a First Amendment uh, absolutist uh, position that, uh, well, if you don't like the hate speech on a particular platform, just don't read it? 
Great. Um, that's, you know, like a perfectly valid perspective. And we, I want to be very clear that this is an absolutely apolitical study. There's nothing political about it. Um, you know, on a platform, if somebody wants to say Joe Biden is good and somebody else wants to say Joe Biden is bad, they're going to have an argument with a lot of acrimony. And that's fine. We're built for that. Uh, we're talking about specific sort of like hateful content. And if people don't want to see it, they can choose to leave the platform. And I think some will. Um, advertisers, maybe will see this sort of hate content and say, I don't want my brand associated with that, right? Um, I think that the market can correct this. We're not, there's no recommendation for, for government intervention or any kind of compromise of the free speech. Um, he can run whatever kind of platform he wants to run. It's it's certainly up to him. Because all we're doing is sort of monitoring, um, is this a space that's good? Is this a space that you want uh, to be associated with and connected to? And one of our concerns was also that Twitter has about 20 million uh, users under the age of 18. And we just want to make sure, you know, what sorts of content are those people seeing, like like the young people um, that maybe could be influenced by this and pulled in a very bad direction towards some really maybe hateful views. Um, we need to kind of like look and see what is the safety of the platform. And again, there has been no changes. We just want to see like what is continuing to happen. And if this sort of ambient level of hate remains at a high level, that's just something we want to note. Um, but again, it's up to everybody. Your decision about what you want to see and whether or not you want to visit that site. I can't help but think that no matter who owns Twitter or a site like Twitter, be it Facebook uh, or any Instagram, you name it, uh, no matter who owns the site, there's really no winning on is an issue like this when it comes to free speech and hate speech trying to balance. And with so many millions upon millions of people on the site on a daily basis, tell me, what was the biggest surprise you may have found in uh, leading this study? I think that what what kind of surprised us when we did the, the the study is the number of people that were posting these like really like hateful terms um, in that initial 12 hours was actually relatively small, like Twitter confirmed as much. Um, and the total volume of tweets that came out that were sort of reflecting use of these terms was was certainly like under 10,000, right? Like it was not a massive number of tweets. You look at what Twitter is mostly, which is people like posting cat videos and, you know, like sharing spirit Halloween memes, right? Like that's most of Twitter. This was a very small number. The thing that concerned us was that we did some uh, analytics and we saw that potential media impressions of these tweets was about 3 million. So even if you have a small group of people saying a lot of bad things, um, that reach can be a little bit bigger, which is why it's really so important if a platform wants to remain safe, that moderation is, is absolutely crit critical. All right, Bond, thank you again. That's Bond Benton, professor uh, in the School of Communications and Media at Montclair State. Well, we've been um, going in depth in some of the bigger statewide ballot measures this past week. Today, we're going to take a look at uh, Prop 30. You probably have seen the ad supporting it. They say a tax on the wealthy will help fight fires and clean the air. Yeah, but opponents, including Governor Newsom, say it's just a tricky way to help lift the rideshare company. With us is uh, Eli Lipman, executive director of Move LA, which is in support of the prop, and Stuart Waldman, president of the uh, Valley Industry and Commerce Association, which is against Prop 30. Uh, Eli, uh, Stuart, thank you for joining us on In-Depth. Eli, let's begin with you. Uh, Governor Newsom calls this uh, a trick by lift. I think I think his wording is it's a lift grift. How and why is the governor wrong? Well, thank you very much. Yes, Eli Lemon, Executive Director of Move LA. And let me just start out by saying that Prop 30 raises $100 billion over 20 years from the richest Californians for a sustained investment to fund zero emission vehicles and trucks. 
charging and fueling infrastructure and address wildfires. And we're going to put $80 billion in investment in clean transportation infrastructure to end the reign of toxic diesel and create family sustaining uh, jobs and actually dwarfs the existing funding. And we started this in 2020. Move LA, my colleague, Denny Zane, uh, brought together transit advocates from SPUR, environmental justice organizations like the Greenlining Institute, environmental groups like the Environmental Voters and NRDC, and public health advocates like Coalition for Clean Air and the American Lung Association, and then labor unions like IBW to actually write this measure. So we just think that that the governor's uh, position on this is just categorically false because we know we've been there from the beginning writing this measure. Okay, so Stuart, you uh, think Prop 30 is a sham. Why? Well, you know, this is a measure that was written specifically to benefit one corporation who's funding it, Lyft. Uh, $25 million. Uh, I, I don't know, Eli, how much Lyft is given to your organization, uh, but your organization is pushing several ballot measures and, and your MO is to tax the rich, so so to speak. But this is a measure that follows a, a California Air Resources Board rule that required rideshare companies to use zero emission vehicles for at least 90% of their miles by 2030. So instead of just upgrading their vehicles and giving incentives, um, like other corporations, uh, Lyft decided that they were going to go to the voters uh, to ask them to raise taxes. Um, and of course, they, they found you know the, the folks that they want to raise taxes on, the rich, uh, and they decided that they would have government fund them instead of funding other things. And all the while, the state had a nearly $100 billion surplus and did invest in many uh, new programs. And uh, Eli, let's get back to you. You never did touch on Lyft in your earlier answer. Yeah, you want to respond me- to Stuart and what he just said now? A hundred percent. And it's, uh, you guys should know, you should, our, the listeners should know that Stuart and I know each other really well. We're usually actually on the same side of things. So, uh, this is surprising, but we're good. We're good friends. Um, the, the claim that Lyft wrote it is false and numerous journal- journalists have actually fact checked that claim by Lyft. Do you know the amount that Prop 30 earmarks for Lyft? Zero dollars. The text of the measure doesn't mention Lyft or any company actually by name. And there's absolutely no preferential treatment for any company in this measure. I should know. I actually wrote the fine print. Yeah, but wait a minute. But wait, 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 stop. Eli, can you hear us? Yeah, Eli, stop for a second. So your position is that nothing in Prop 30 is going, it says anything specifically about Lyft or any other ride sharing company. But you know, as well as I do, there are backdoor ways to make sure that certain interests get funded, whether or not they're mentioned specifically. So my question to you is, is is your good friend, as you put it, uh, Stuart, is he kind of right? Because whether or not Lyft is mentioned, is the impact, if Prop 30 passes, in effect to help fund Lyft? Right. Well, so low and middle income Californians are eligible for these rebates. And 50% of the money, so $40 billion, will go directly to low-income Californians. And among them are probably some folks who drive Lyft, right? And, and you know, to answer the question earlier, I don't, we don't receive, my organization doesn't receive money from Lyft. I take Lyft every now and then, but we're not being funded by it. So, yes, there are uh, less than 
0.2% of the funding under Prop 30 will go to individuals who drive on these rideshare platforms. That means 99.8% of the funding will go to benefit Californians who have nothing to do with rideshare. Okay, uh, let's wrap this up. Stuart, a final thought from you. Yeah, let's not pretend that Lyft is being altruistic here. They've been around since 2012, and they didn't lift a finger to try and and you know make sure that there were zero emission vehicles in their fleets until they're being forced to in 2021. And they are using this measure to fund their new vehicles so they don't have to. All right. Stuart Waldman, uh, president of the Valley Industry and Commerce Association, which is against Prop 30, and uh, Eli Lippman, executive director of Move LA, who supports the prop. Uh, gentlemen, both thank you for joining us on KNX In-Depth. And they're both friends, they say. And they're good friends yeah. as well, usually on the same side when it comes to uh, issues oh, well. like this. Uh, but not today. Uh, vote. Voting day coming up on Tuesday. This is KNX In-Depth with Chris Seedens. I'm Charles Felder. Well, the uh, CDC has updated its guidelines. These are guidelines for doctors who prescribe opioids. There are 12 new recommendations that focus on both long- and short-term pain. And they include advising doctors against abruptly stopping opioid prescriptions or rapidly reducing a patient's doses. The CDC also no longer suggests trying to limit opioid treatment for acute pain to three days. Now, could this make the opioid crisis inadvertently worse? Dr. Bruce Bassey is an addiction psychiatrist and medical director and founder of Telepsych Health. Thank you, doctor, for being with us. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I, I totally get, because I remember we did many, many stories on it, that as the opioid crisis uh, got worse in this country, there was a clampdown, as you well know, and it, it made it difficult for people who genuinely needed pain relief often to get the, the amount of pain relief that their doctors felt they needed. So in the sense of it loosening up, that's probably a good thing. But it's kind of a, a tricky problem, isn't it? Because by making it a little bit looser, maybe a lot looser, does that open the door potentially for going right back to the situation that we've had for the past few years? Well, the guidelines themselves are pretty comprehensive. They're close to 60 pages long. So while it's easy to boil it down to a quick snippet, they don't actually just completely disregard dosage entirely. This has been a a change from the 2016 guidelines that people mostly thought were way too restrictive in regard to the um, morphine milligram equivalent dosing of 90 milligrams that they set as a cap, so to speak. And above that, people needed to do additional steps if they were going to continue prescribing. So now they have gone away with that cap, but they still state that the dosage should be considered to be, um, it has reducing impact above 50 milligrams. And so they still do state that there actually is a cap, but they are less strong and have less of a policing tone. Um, in their guidelines, they're also, so they do. Yeah, I, I was going to say they're also advising against abruptly stopping opioid prescriptions. Is that a good idea? Correct. They they take a more individualized approach when making the recommendations, and they 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 distinctly state that that the um, guidelines are not intended to be inflexible, rigid standard of care. Rather, they're supposed to be guideposts to inform clinical patient decision making. 
So they really are trying to state that while these are guidelines, everybody has their own individual usage and the the dose requirements for opioids differ depending on the diagnosis and what you're actually using it for, what type of pain condition. So they, they recognize that they, they don't want to make a blanket statement anymore. You know, I started off the segment by saying that for some people, maybe many people who really did need uh, effective pain management with opioid medication, that the situation has been somewhat unpleasant the past few years because of the concern about abuse. How bad has it been? Well, that's correct. So there was a study that showed about 84% of people who were taking opioids and had chronic pain actually had worse pain and worse quality of life. And that was from a 2017 study that showed that the pendulum had swung the entirely the other direction and physicians were very paranoid about prescribing above that 90 milligram mark. And so they just abruptly stopped the medications for, for a lot of individuals and they had worse pain and they felt they felt like they were being punished because they couldn't be seen in that practice anymore because they, quote unquote, broke the guideline. In the end, how far will these measures go towards dealing with the, the, the problem, the opioid addiction problem we have in this country? That's a that's a very good question. You know, there's there's some impact that these have for a few years after they they come out. But ultimately, I, I think that the CDC does take into consideration public comment and comment from expert opinion, but we still don't have a lot of data and the the guidelines do call for more data to be to to be researched on these issues. So the the dosage measure is just one metric in in terms of risk factors for overdose. There's other risk factors for overdose that I think um, future subsequent editions of the CDC need to include such as mental illness, prior inpatient admission, et cetera. All right. Dr. Bassey, thank you. Again, that's Dr. Bruce Bassey, addiction psychiatrist and medical director and founder of Telepsych Health. Well, if you're sleepy, don't worry. You're going to be able to get an extra hour on Sunday when we move the clocks back. You've been told about the short-term impacts of time change, being tired, higher, higher risk of heart attacks, things like that. But there has been a push to do away with it all for a reason. Yeah, the Senate passed a bill to make daylight saving time permanent. That's what we're on right now. Uh, The House, by the way, has ignored that. Uh, But many sleep experts say it's best to remain on standard time, which is what we're about to fall back to on Sunday. Dr. Beth Mallow, professor of neurology and pediatrics. She's also the director of the Vanderbilt University Sleep Division. Uh, Yes, the extra hour of sleep is nice, but the days do get shorter. I kind of like daylight saving time. Our Karen Adams, on the other hand, she wants standard time year-round. Tell me, Dr. On which side do you fall, daylight saving time or standard time year-round? Or should we stay the way we are? Uh, well, I it's definitely a debate. And I do want to just clarify for the listeners and viewers that the House isn't really ignoring the problem. They're just taking a really thoughtful look at a lot of issues, including transportation and energy and how those factor in. I was uh, privileged to testify before the House last year, last spring, actually. And I came down on the side as a health expert for permanent standard time. 
And the reason I say that is I agree, we all want our light, but we can only get so much light, uh, particularly in the winter. And morning light, the light that we get more of during permanent standard time is actually the healthier choice because it gets us going, it wakes us up, it resets our mood. Uh, it allows us to get to bed earlier at night and get more sleep. And it's just overall better for our health to have that morning light. I'm curious because there are places uh, on the planet, of course, uh, including here in this in the states, where they don't change the clocks. Right? Uh, is there any evidence, any studies that show that people who live in those environments fare better health wise? That's a tricky study to do because, for example, one of the states that does not change their clocks is Hawaii. And you can imagine that people who live in Hawaii may be healthier anyway because they, <laughs> yeah. you know, right? You're going to, but I think that, um, no, you ask a great question. And I, I think the other way to think about it is that some people actually do fine with with anything, but other people are going to be more susceptible. So, for example, people who live in the north, like in Minnesota or Michigan, are probably going to do better than people living in California if you were to, or I should say, you're going to do worse with permanent daylight saving time than people who live in California. I think people who live in California, you guys have an advantage because you have so much sunlight and you are more south and you are more west. Um, so there is a lot of geographical variability that goes on here. Um, the other the group that's very susceptible are people who can't control their hours. So if they have to be somewhere at six or seven in the morning, like our, our high school students, they're going to be more susceptible as well than the rest of us. And Dr. Mallow, am I not right in saying that part of the reason we have daylight saving now and, and standard time, the way we have it in the schedule it's set on, set at rather, is to, to help our farming community? You know, it's it's funny you say that. Most farmers actually come out on the side of permanent standard time because they want that light in the morning. Uh, they also I've also heard about the cows getting confused, right, about <laughs> what time they're supposed to get milked and everything. But no, um, my understanding is that the the farmers actually are more in favor of permanent standard time. Um, the reason that we went to the daylight saving time to begin with was to try to save energy. Uh, and it's not clear that we've saved a lot of energy. I think um, energy savings is fairly negligible, especially with increased energy efficiency and with um, needing more air conditioning in the hot summer months in the afternoon. Uh, but that's one of the things I think the House is trying to study is really get a good grasp Mexico, the state of Mex, the country of Mexico recently went to permanent standard time and their energy ministry said that they really saw negligible energy uh, savings with daylight saving time and that the health aspects really outweighed any savings in energy. So we need to look at that in this country as well. Now, of course, as you know, look, this, this debate has been going on for, I can't remember how many years we've been doing stories about this, like clockwork pun intended. Uh, <laughs> you know. true. Yeah. Uh, but it always makes me think when something is this difficult to resolve, it's because usually there are a lot of vested interests on both sides of the issue. Uh, very briefly, what are the vested interests fighting for 
one way or the other? Because it would seem like it wouldn't be or shouldn't be that big a deal to decide one way or the other. (laughs) That's a great point. I think that the vested interests on the permanent standard time really are all of the sleep specialists, health specialists, uh, people who uh, do research in what we call circadian rhythms, which is how our internal clock matches up with the external environment. I don't think we have a lot of lobbyists arguing for permanent standard time. Um, but I think on the daylight saving time end, there is uh, there have been some studies, for example, showing that uh, people spend more money, they use their credit cards more, um, they play golf more during daylight saving time because they have that afternoon light. So, so, wait a minute. so it all, so yeah. it, it, what it all comes down to is it often does is money, yeah, right? Yeah. Is that what it is? It comes down to money. <laughs> well, to some extent, yes. I mean, I think we, many of us do prefer or do like the idea of having afternoon light. I get that. Um, however, I think we need to explain to the American public and our legislators that the light we get in the morning is actually healthier. And if we don't get that light, or those of us who need to get that light because we need to be up early, uh, it is going to cost a lot of money in health costs. And people have actually shown that, um, for example, income is lower if you live on a certain, you know, geographically, and you're more susceptible to the darkness in the morning. Dr. Mello, Um, yeah. Yeah. I'll go for the afternoon golf and the extra hour there. I'll, I'll take that. Thank you so much for, for talking about this with us. That's uh, Dr. Beth Mello, director of the Vanderbilt University Sleep Division. That'll do it for In-Depth.